You're listening to Threshold Radio with Sam Ronto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp. Forbidden archaeology, portion of what is viewed as national security. Look at these lights going across the road. You can argue about Roswell all you want to, but something happened today. We're just collecting the data is we know we have made out is there. Is it government? Is it, is it alien? Uh, an object was actually caught on a video. We're dealing with something genuine. This isn't make believe. Thresholds into other realms. You're listening to Threshold Radio. I'm Anthony K. With me is Sam Ranto and John Stevenson. On today's show, we have Cassidy O'Connor, Michael Clean, and much more. You're not going to want to miss this one. We're going to start off right away with Michael Clean right after this quick commercial break. You're listening to Threshold Radio. We'll be right back. TheEdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Moranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Kopp Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on TheEdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Welcome back to Thresholds into Other Realms. With us right now is Michael Clean, and Michael has a special guest with him again tonight. How you doing, Mike? Hey, John. I'm doing pretty good, although suffering through a mild cold right now. Uh, yeah, that's right. I've got a guest for us, Cassidy O'Connor who is the author of Diaries of the Dark Side. And we did talk with her before, um, I believe last year, and we had such a great time that I thought we would uh, reintroduce her to the audience. I know we got a lot of new listeners since then, and a lot of people who may not have heard of her wonderful book. And so I decided to have her on again so that we could uh, catch up and see how things have been going since we last spoke with her. So Cassidy, how, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us, and how has everything been going? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Things have been interesting since the book has been put out. There's been a little bit of controversy here and there, but... On a whole, the book has received an overwhelmingly warm welcome into the world. Oh, good. Uh, why don't you, for some of our listeners who uh, may not have heard the first interview, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in the paranormal to begin with? I have been dealing in the supernatural realm for about 10 years, now 11. I began very slowly. I was a gifted kid. I kept it very quiet. I grew up and started to chase legends, chase lore, chase different things. And I actually got involved with a paranormal group out of my area that introduced me to the case that this book is about. And this book isn't a regional book or a book on haunted locations. This book is a memoir of about a five-year case and my three years involved in it. Now, you, you co-authored a book on haunted Buffalo, New York. Is that correct? I did, yes. That was the first publication I ever put out, and that that went extremely well. A little bit of a hiccup with a little few things, but for the most part, that has done extremely well. And I will find people that come up to me and say, I have your book, you know. Um, so that, that regionally has done very well, and Buffalo really warmed up to that book. I started writing for Intrepid Magazine also under Scotty Roberts, and I have enjoyed that immensely. So when I 
totally switched gears when I put this out. I didn't, it wasn't something that was planned. It wasn't something that I really wanted to do until I sat down and did it. So I kind of switched gears and now in the future I'm switching again and I'm going to fiction. Yeah, well, it's it's good when you can uh, sort of stretch your limits and, and go do different uh, genres like that. I know I, I like to do that too and hopefully um, it'll be an easy transition, you know, because sometimes people... Th- are only familiar with some kinds of your work. And then when they encounter this new stuff that you write, they, they're kind of confused because they think, oh, this is Cassie. She's only written the, this factual book. I didn't know she did this other stuff. Right. Um, so hopefully that'll go well. Well, the book you have out now is just a bit on the dark side, too. It's a true story about uh, demons and exorcism, too. So it's, uh, it's an interesting book. Well, I think the word demon is overused in the world. And I think that... You know, whatever these, I never say demonic, I never say demon, and I, you know, and I was very careful to not say it because of the fact that it is so overused, and there is so much that comes with that. And with the exorcism, I had put it in there because there was a folly exorcism attempt by a self-proclaimed demonologist, and the reason I put it in there was to show people that just because you say something doesn't mean that's what you are. If I were to say, oh, look, the sky is bright green. That doesn't mean it actually is. No matter how intelligent I sound or intellectual I come across, it doesn't mean the sky is green. Mm-hmm. So I think the word demon is very overused. I, I kept it to like a darker influence or you know, darker energy, and I, and I kept that as a negative balance, but not diving into you know, demons. Well, it was like an evil entity then or something like that. It's something that wasn't uh, didn't have good intentions for the family. It was possessing, so to speak. This, this thing had been there a long time, and this team that I had been brought into had worked it for over two years and had done nothing but made it a mass load worse. When I was involved, they had already lost seven people. And, you know, when I was brought into that case, you know, I, I worked in the paranormal and I, you know, I did this and I did that and I had all this fancy equipment and I was unstoppable. I was so wrong. And it doesn't matter what kind of equipment you have. The only thing that you have is your inner strength when you deal with something like this. There, there mm-hmm. is no other. There is no amount of equipment or knowledge that someone can possess. I've always and, found that equipment to be quite useless, actually, when I've gone into any places like this. I've actually been reading, too. A friend of mine led me on to some of these studies that they're doing in Europe on some of this professional ghost hunting equipment that makes it absolutely uh, useless that it's not even being read correctly, that these things aren't even used for that purpose. And it's some pretty interesting studies if you, you go look around Europe a little bit. I actually find just a, a good camera, a video recorder, and a uh, digital voice recorder are, are some of the best things you can use. That's all I have. I have a camera, I have a digital voice recorder, and that, you know what, I have a pair of dowsing rods that were made for me uh, from a couple of my friends in Europe. No, in Australia, actually. And they, I've kept those, and I use those once in a while, but more, most of the time I'm using them to find water, water lines. I think that the biggest tool that a human has is its own body, and nobody seems to understand that. Well, I, th- I mean, not to get off on a little uh, tangent here, but I think a, a lot of those uh, equipment is designed to, to detect natural phenomenon like electricity and electrical energy and there's of course a theory that somehow ghosts either interact with that field or produce electricity but in my perspective i i don't think that ghosts or spirits 
are on the same, let's say, the same page as those physical forces so that the, the equipment really has kind of a limited use when it comes to, to trying to detect something like a ghost. I agree. I agree too. Like say, well, the meter I have, like my EMF meter, is actual a professional electrician one. And heaven forbid, don't get the one that's got the picture of the ghost on it and has the word ghost <laughs> anywhere in the title. Well, people do, and unfortunately, yeah. you see celebrities doing that too, selling their special ghost meter. If you want to get the equipment, go to a real electronic store and buy a proper tool. You don't need a little ghost on it to make it work. Yeah, but the, the if you guys go into the study they just did in Europe, I mean, it's only. That equipment is only used to measure certain things, and whether or not it, it it blips with you know phenomena or whatnot, these things are slowly becoming uh, useless out there. And I have come, I was shocked when I started you know reading this stuff. Like I said, a friend put me onto it, and I haven't owned anything like that in I'd say five years. I had all the equipment at one time, and I started giving it away. I, I worked in an asylum for about a year. And there were a lot of younger people that were volunteers and things, and they didn't have the money for this kind of, you know, this kind of equipment. And I ended up giving it away. And yeah. I'm glad that I did because I never touched it anyways. It I actually agree. I mean, I've got all the meters and all the little toys too. And uh, all I use generally is, for the most part, I just use my camera. Like say in a, or a voice recorder, but a lot of times just the camera. But I have used my temperature gun a few times. I've had a few interesting results on that. I, I can't say what it was for sure, but I, I have found some drastic temperature changes. Well, before we go f too far down this road... We've given a little tease for the audience about what the, the book is about, but why don't you just go over generally what Diaries of the Dark Side is about and how you came to write the book. Just just for listeners who are just joining us and they don't really, you know, uh, aren't up to speed on what we're talking about. Putting this book out was extremely difficult to do. And putting out so much of myself into the world was also very difficult. I'm a very, very private person, but I felt the need to put the things that were also happening to me during the life of this case and my, my son, my husband. So it was hard for me, but I figured it was important. And the whole book is basically my memoir. It's, it's what happened to me, what happened to this family. And in a roundabout, there's no way to, to generalize it, but it, there was a very, very, very dark influence that was stuck to a property, and it, over the years, um, attached itself to an 11-year-old boy. And they had all the signs coming, and they, of course, didn't realize that there's, there's many people that don't even dip into the metaphysical field in their, in their entire life. So when they think that just a series of accidents, series of accidents, it, it, it ends up tying together, and it's pretty scary. And this family lost seven people throughout five years. And I was brought in, like I said, two years into it by a team that had only made things drastically worse. And I was brought in as a psychic. And like I said, putting myself out there before I released this book, my coworkers, a few of my family members, they had no idea what I actually did on my, on my, you know, part-time. They had no idea. So I had a lot of explaining to do, but it was, you know, it was worth it. And throughout the life of this case, this little boy had changed into several things physically, and he was hospitalized several times. He actually was uh, on the top 10 list of being the most dangerous child in the state at one point. He had been on lockdown. He had been on so many medications and so many. They were looking into child onset schizophrenia. They were looking into, you know, sociopathic tendencies. They, they were looking at all these things, bipolar, but nothing ever seemed to stick because, you know, my problem with the medical field is, is there's no balance. It's either a medical thing or it's not. Mm -hmm. 
and nobody seems to be looking at this. And when there's this phenomenon going on, I mean, at one point, well, several points, this child would have these open sores appear on his hand right in between. If you look at your hand, your thumb and your pointer finger down in that, that meaty part of your hand, this, this, these sores would open up and they would ooze this clear liquid. The next day he would wake up and they would look like 10-year-old scars. Some days he would wake up, there would be no scar. Then you'd go back to the next day and they'd be oozing again. And it seemed, you know, in my research, I had never dealt with anything like this. I had dealt with spooky old houses, haunted locations. I knew everything. You don't. The more you know, the less you know. And the more I got involved, the more things started happening in my life. And I ended up splitting away from the team that I was working on with it, working on it with, and not having any contact with the family for almost a year. And what it was told to me was when I was excused from the case was that the family had nothing. They didn't want anything to do with me. They didn't like me. Um, I was a failure. I had gone through several mishaps in my own life, and it was basically put on me with the fact, look what you allowed it to do to you. And so I left it alone. And it was about, like I said, it was about a year later. It was spring. And I just, one day I woke up and I just couldn't stop. And, you know, the whole year I did nothing but, you know, self-educate on, on what the hell this thing could be. And, you know, I, I basically write in the book that I was eating books for breakfast because I couldn't get enough. And I, you know, I needed to know who, what, when, where, and why, and what I had encountered and why in my own life that my little boy was getting thrown from his bed at 247 every night. You know, why were my coffee tables, my glass top coffee tables exploding? Oh, so this had followed you home then? This, it was all part of it. It's not like it followed me. It, this thing had, if you were to imagine a spider and you'd imagine its body right in the center of the problem. And all those long legs and this ability to interfere and, and interface with people that were involved. Right. This was, this was strong. And, you know, I had things going on. They would have handymen come over and fix something in the house and kill themselves. Mm. You know, the man that helped them put the walls up when they built the house on the property killed himself. He was just about to get married. He was, you know, he was a happy guy. Yeah, I remember that from the book. Yeah. It's not a good mean, sign. <laughs> no. And, you know, anybody that had contact with the child once that he really went under, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors, any kind of nurses were suffering. I mean, there was one that they really liked at one point, and she broke her leg. Uh, you know, different, different psychologists and things. There was one that got a very, very bad illness and, and put her in the hospital. And nobody would go near this kid. And who's to say that everybody else that was involved may not have had other mishaps that we don't know about. The police force, you know, the EMTs that, that religiously had to come back to the house. That's true. People could have had things happen and never even realized it was from that. These things travel so far and deep and, you know, they have no conscience. Time means nothing. And people need to realize it. And, you know, about a year from being apart from them, when I, well, the first, let me go back. When I was first involved, I was not allowed to know the address of the property, the phone number, you know, nothing of the sort. I worked under this gentleman and, and, and he had all the information, which was fine. I had a lot of trust in him. So, you know, this was a few hours from my home. So I didn't really know the way and I didn't know, you know, the town. And uh, over a year of really, really odd occurrences, I not only found the address, but was able to skip trace their private number. And I remember the day, I remember I, I was out in front of my garage and it was sunny and there was, you know, it, was, it had rained the night before and I got her on the phone. And 
that moment, I wasn't sure if she wanted to talk to me or not. I had no idea, but I knew that I had to find them again. Mm. And she immediately burst out crying and said, oh my God, I never thought I'd talk to you again. Things are so bad. And I come to find out that this professional team of demonologists had left them and hadn't seen them since I had saw them. Well, and nice. all they allowed this child to do was get even worse. Yeah, they compounded and, the damage probably just trying to get a little bit of publicity for themselves. And they did. They, you know, there were instances where lectures were being given and everything else. I had put a stop to that. I did put a stop to that. But it did take me, you know, forming a whole new group of people together that were, that were needed and going back in and hitting this thing again. And we got it. I was very lifted. I, I felt really good about it. I was carrying... I'm a very healthy person, very athletic stature. During the life of this case, I had carried an inhaler and I was having problems with blood oxygen levels where I didn't know who, what, when, where, or why. I would forget my name, my birthday. I had had it happen when I was driving. I had been hospitalized. I had to have this inhaler all the time in order to think properly. And I thought, gosh, you know, is this connected or is this just an odd, you know, health concern? So we, we, we licked the thing the first time. We really went in. We put a lot of effort and energy and time and, and a lot of driving, and everything was okay. And, oh, there was a, there's a bishop that I'm very close to that I work with from time to time, and I remember him pulling me aside one night at dinner and saying, you must watch for at least six months. You have to wait at least six months. You're not safe yet. And I said, okay, okay, Jim. And, oh, I think it was about three to four months later that I got a call, and she was very, you know, from this grandmother of the home, who I refer to as Kathy in the book, and she was very distraught. And, you know, they had all these children in the house because of all of the, you know, problems and things that had happened over the years. They ended up having quite a few of their grandchildren living with them. And their daughter, who was the mother of four, was just not coming around anymore. And all of a sudden started having very odd things happen to her. She was a dispatcher for a cab company. And she began calling out an address one night that didn't exist and then start just screaming, screaming and, and blubbering on and, uh, she was transported to the hospital. To this day, she doesn't remember a thing. So she started to come to the house less and less. And, you know, Matthew in the book, who is the little boy who had been through all of this, they said it was like an animal instinct that when, you know, his aunt was coming to the house five minutes before the woman would pull in the driveway, the boy would lock himself in his room. And I remember one night her calling me and saying, oh my gosh, she's gone. She's disappeared. Nobody can find her. And I had put in several hours that night. I even, you know, drove to the area, which was very inner city, very bad place, to find a woman that I had only met one time in my life who thought I was a wacko, of course. And it was, I think, several weeks later after very, very, you know, urgent phone calls from me, if you get her there, keep her there, because I knew that something was building. And I already knew that whatever this was had, you know, the ability to jump and it seemed to hit the weakest link, whether it be the dog, whether it be the boy, you know. And in this, this woman had already lost her husband. He was one of the seven. And from hanging, which was exactly how everybody else had passed. And we finally got her to the house one night. And she, she walked in and said, Mom, I'm going to kill myself. You need to help me. So I ended up, I was working uh, my day job. And I got out at 10 o'clock at night. And I drove a few hours. And we spent the rest of the night working on this woman. And she has done beautifully well since. And after that night, uh, we finally got it in her. I woke up in the morning and I never used my inhaler again. You know, I never, all the problems, the back problems, everything that I go into in the book were gone. 
And so this thing had long legs and it could reach out to anybody. Come to find out some of the things that we found out since that have been absolutely terrible is one of the people that had committed suicide during this had a son out of the country who ended up committing suicide the same way, never knowing his father actually had done that. He was told that he was in a car wreck. And so, you know, you don't know how far these things can reach. So where do you think this came from? What do you think was the origin of this dark energy? Well, the first thing I started doing after my first visit, where I completely lost time and had a terrible day, was trying to start to locate the history on this. And I knew with there being a very historical property extremely close, that there had to be a connection. There had to be something, you know, linked between the two. And, you know, to come to find out that on that very spot was a Native American internment camp at one point. And, you know, in the beginning of our country's history. And I had gone through and spent hours and hours literally going through the inlets that were on that waterfront and trying to make sure. And, you know, lo and behold, this is where this house sits. And so then we had to work at it with a completely different view that, you know, something that comes from this place, you have to work on the place, but you also have to work on who it's affected. So it was a very Mm -hmm. large case that took, like I said, me three years and a lot of self-educating. And I will never be an expert. And I don't care if I do this for the rest of my life. I'll never know a hangnail of what I would like to know in the future. Now, we were talking a little bit earlier about some of these uh, paranormal investigators. And I think we can maybe lighten things up a little bit uh, by talking about some of the things you mentioned in the book about Hollywood-type paranormal (laughs) investigators and uh, doing that for TV. You know, one of the scenes that sticks out in my mind is that... uh, is that there was a couple of people who, of course, will, won't mention any names, but uh, they were interviewed for a show but were rejected because they were too overweight. Do you, <laughs> do you want to tell us about, a little bit about that situation? Which is sick. You know, and I, in writing this book, there were so many things that just wanted to spur out of my mouth like fire, and I, <laughs> and I kept them quiet because things are meant to stay in people's heads and not exit their mouths. Because no matter how you feel about somebody, it doesn't matter. So in this book, every name was changed. You know, everything, every likeness was changed. To but protect the innocent and the guilty. Exactly, actually. And there, these, this specific group of people wanted nothing more than to have their faces on the TV. And, of course, I've never had a TV. If I had a local couple channels, I was, you know, in my glory because I won't pay for television. And well, there's nothing really worth watching. <laughs> so I never I never had that need for fame. I never felt that I needed to be on, you know, something like that. And I figured when they really wanted to go for this, I thought, well, this is kind of exciting, I guess, you know. Yeah, I'll, I'll help you. And they had flown me to New York City and I talked to all these people and in, in these, you know, real nice, you know, expensive office chairs. And I can remember sitting there and laughing under my breath at what these people were trying to put together. And, you know, in the book, I literally said, if you want me to be a Ghostbuster, you can kiss my (laughs) you-know-what. And I left that, and I laughed it off. Like, I come to get a phone call, oh, I don't know, a month later maybe? I don't know the approximate time. And they got a hold of me directly and said, we want you. We want to put you on a showing idea. And I said, what about, you know, the other two? This is what they really wanted, or the other four or five. And he says, oh, no, 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 their weight was unsatisfactory. (laughs) That's irrelevant. That's crazy. (laughs) It's not irrelevant for them. Yeah. Well, that just shows you how fake the TV stuff is. And and, and it is. I mean, I I, I actually said that on the phone. I I said, what what do you want? 
I said, you know, you want to produce something that's real and to teach people. And that's what I told you. Unless you want me to teach somebody or help somebody, I'm not interested. And I said, you know, and I'm not a Barbie doll. You know, I don't have the blonde hair and, you know, the the skinny waistline. I don't. I don't. And the fact that that was what was most important sickened me. It absolutely sickened me. And, you know, they they continually tried and tried and tried and and I just didn't want to be involved in it. And after long after ever being involved with them, the same people, you know, called me back again and said, hey, Cass, we've got something you're really going to like. And it was a showing idea about taking history, you know, and the supernatural and trying to compare them, you know, mm-hmm. and I thought that that is what I want to try to get out there. How yeah, it sounds like a good idea. Oh, yeah. I jumped right for it. Well, over a series of film screens and everything else, I was let go by the network. Their exact words were, we can't have an intelligent woman in an authority position on a men's cable network. So that right there, I laughed. You know, when the producer called, he was very upset. And I laughed and I said, that's okay. He goes, what do you mean that's okay? I said, that's totally fine because it wouldn't have been what I thought it was when I went into it. You know, all these ghost hunters and all these paranormal investigators, all they want to do is be famous. They want the next best TV show. Yeah, they're five seconds of fame. That's all it's come down to. I mean, real paranormal research, the people that are, oh, that are behind the scenes that I have had a chance to, to come in contact with and befriend are irreplaceable. I mean, you know, and all these so-called experts, you know, when you were talking about your electronic equipment, yeah, buy it from an electrician store, you know, things, right. you know, and all these experts, they have Frank's boxes. I actually know I was told a story last weekend about a big time group that had gone to a specific location and I have, I have a Frank's box. I know Frank. I think a lot of him. And these people had no idea how to use the box. Mm-hmm. And the woman that owns the location says, oh, no, no, no. That's not how you're supposed to use it. You're supposed to do this, this, and this. And they said, well, how do you know? Well, a friend of mine has it. You know? And it, it was like even these big time people, you know, if you want to learn how to use something, you've got a Frank's box. In some way, you've got a Frank's box. Go to Frank himself. He's an extremely nice guy. You know, you've got, you've got a Melmeter or an RTEVP. Gary Galka is one of the nicest men you'll ever come across. And he'll help you. He has cards with his email just for that. If they break, he fixes them. You want to learn how to use these things. Go to the people that are properly trained or designed them. And not, you know, get matching car magnets and T-shirts and rush into homes saying, hey, your house is haunted. You know, that is kind of actually a lot of these groups do that. The first thing they do is actually uh, get T-shirts and hats. Yeah. And these Boy. self-proclaimed psychics and these self-proclaimed demonologists... I mean, you would need lifetimes, lifetimes, you guys, of you would need human psychology and religion and history, education to even touch being a self-proclaimed demonologist. And I know experience is a lot of the knowledge that people gain in this field because there is no all-knowing teacher. But I'm telling you, these people go in, you know, if some woman says, I'm a psychic, and she goes in and tells a family member something, that could alter that person's life forever. And if she's pulling it out of her back end, she should be ashamed of herself. And these well, the, people, they go in, they want to do this. They, they, they think they're movie stars. And it's about research. It's not about money, signs, and fame. The thing that, that bothers me really is the fact that I've spent years, when, when I was like eight, nine years old, I would sit, you know, normally at that age, you're reading what like, uh, you know, I don't know, the uh, <laughs> whatever kids read. I was too young at the time for Harry Potter but I would sit there and read the adult uh, ghost books, you know, books about ghost stories from around the world and metaphysics and things like that. And I would just sit there and read that stuff for years. 
you know, mm-hmm. every book that I could get my hands on. And today I encounter so many different people who watched Ghost Hunters or Paranormal State and that's it. And they've done no other research or anything and they think they can just go out there and yeah, and they're an you expert know, now. Suddenly they know everything there is to know about ghosts and the paranormal, well, and they true. haven't even cracked a book. So many of these groups you see, these so-called ghost groups, all they do is watch uh, their favorite TV show for a while. They get together, usually a husband and wife, and then a few friends, and they come up with a flashy name and some shirts, and wow, they're a ghost group. Yeah. And, and you know what's really sad, you know, and there's so many of them, and I do know a lot of people that are really, really interested in research, and they're good people. They really are. But how much education is out there? And, you know, I was on a show a little while ago and they said, well, what kind of team do you work with now? And I said, I don't. I, I have my close knit, you know, I can count my friends on one hand and I, I'm lucky to have them. And there's people in my area about an hour from me. There's two or three that I work with. There's people that I work with in London, Ireland. There's, you know, that we toss information back and forth. And, you know, Tennessee, California, Florida. But if I'm, you know, everybody says, well, do you do investigations anymore? And I said, no. Well, that's, that's a big thing. Everybody wants you to do that. I won't, I don't work. I mean, I, I've worked with paranormal investigation teams. Don't get me wrong. I, I think there are some good ones, but I, I won't join a team because I just, I, I don't feel like it's worth it to do that for me personally. Anyway, I, some people might get something out of it. Well, I never have either. I've never been in a group or a team ever. I'm always independent and I got a few friends I discuss things with or I'll bring with me, but I don't need a group name or a fancy t-shirt to do research. Yeah. yeah we don't we don't need it to be on TV either. We get <laughs> No. I have found that I am basically I I have several teams of people that are in my area or on the East Coast and if something looks really odd or off to them, they'll call me or I have a set of two men that are, you know, in my area, one of them being a bishop, that if something is really odd, then the three of us will pan together, take care of it. But it's not, it's not like I go with one team or another, and I have all these wonderful friends that have these great paranormal teams, and they have all this stuff all the time and all these different investigations. I never go, and I, it's not rewarding to me to investigate. And so if something's needed or it involves children or some kind of historical event that they're going to need some pulling done on, then I'll help. Mm-hmm. And I don't belong to any team. I don't think I ever will. Well, I won't either. If, plus, if you're on a group or a team and you go out, you've got all these other people in there contaminating the environment. You don't want people with you. You want to go with yourself and maybe one other person, and that's it. You don't want noises. You don't want people walk, and you don't need any of that. Right. Well, for, for some things, I will say it's probably better not to go alone, you know, into some situations. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Yeah, I do too. I mean, there's some places you don't want to go. You want plus if you do see something absolutely amazing, you've got an eyewitness too. Well, even not only just for paranormal reasons, but I no, mean, like safety, if you're going right. into an abandoned building, you might want to bring someone with you. Well, yeah, if you yep. fall through the floor or something. That's another pet peeve of mine. Are these people watching this stuff on these shows and breaking into these abandoned locations and getting hurt? I yeah. mean, I was a kid. I was a kid. Oh, I was probably 16. And there was this abandoned house that I really wanted to check out. And, you know, me being as awesome as I was at 16 and indestructible, I stepped through the window of this house. And apparently the wood that was under the carpet was completely gone because I went right through the floor and hit the hot water tank with the left side of my body on the way down. This was before cell phones. And I had to lay there, recover myself enough to get myself out of there because, you know, and I didn't own this property. You know, I actually had done a write-up a little bit ago and I hadn't released it about 
just because something looks scary doesn't mean it's haunted. You know, exactly. I've had new houses, old houses, you know, and people don't understand that if you open a window on a house that's been sitting still for 20 years, you cause an effect of what could happen just by altering the pressure on that window. People don't understand when they break in. We have a very, very famous haunted location near here called the Hinsdale House. And it is now empty. And they have had the neighbors have had to be so vigilant in watching it because they've smashed the windows out. They have, you know, done things like this. And I was actually asked to go in and read the property. And I did. I absolutely did. I was under Glenn White and his group, and that was fine. But the windows were smashed out. The ceiling had caved in because somebody was walking through the crawl space because it was a haunted spot. And they've had police and everything else. The dangers of going into these places, these old asylums or these old county buildings, state buildings that are now abandoned. Plus, not only the danger, the legalities of it. Well, there, there was a mansion here that was broken into so often that the police actually moved their headquarters into the mansion oh, really? in order to keep people away. I, wasn't it the Stickley Mansion? Do you, do you know, John? I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. Oh, yeah. It's in uh, northern Illinois. People, people don't think. They watch it on TV. That's a whole other reason I put the book out was I step-by-step step explained what happened on my end during this case. And watching these people be fraudulent and, and not care about what they said that they were experts in. It was about that money. It was about that good camera shot. And I, it was I mean, there about is how, a, I can't look. tell you how many groups that I know of, and I don't want to get into any detail or anything, but I mean that actually are only in it for the, the fame. And that's it. It's more than obvious. Because if, <laughs> if there's an article about you in the paper, they're infuriated they weren't in it with you and stuff like that. It's ridiculous. Well, paranormal research has become a mockery at the eyes of the rest of the world because of this. Correct. And it's a very serious venue, and it's a very interesting and rewarding venue to follow. It really is. I mean, going back into, you know, the metaphysics and history and, you know, even biblically and, and looking at these things and putting all these pieces together is so rewarding and mind-boggling and wonderful. Well, and, it's, a, it's an important part of the human experience. And, and nobody gets that. And nobody understands that, you know, evil... It's real, it's there, and it will kick you right in the rear end. And if not, kill you. And these people are like, oh, we read your book. We think it's really cool, and we want to do this also. And I said, did you not read it carefully? Did you not listen to my words when I said this will kill you, your children, your family? You will die. You will die. You know, and, and what do you do then? What, what happens when you, you know, get into these things? And I had a couple demon hunters, actually. They call themselves demon hunters. That, that's actually hilarious, just the name itself. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, every time that they go into a haunted location, in quotations, and get, you know, an F-U or a swear word, they're dealing with a demon and they're hunting them. And one of them actually stood up at a lecture that I gave a while ago and, you know, was said, well, I'm a demon hunter. And I, I started laughing. And then I got more serious and said, have you ever met God? And the kid looked at me. I said, have you ever met the devil? And he looked at me even weirder. I said, because if you had, you'd be much more soft-spoken and heavier foot. Well, and the kid just looked at me like I was the biggest jerk. And, you know, once you come in contact with things like this, as this is our second recording of the show. Exactly, which we're going to go into detail on that shortly. They never leave you. I mean, this, this is something that sticks with you. You come up against something like that. You turn that flashlight on in that dark room. They can see you and you can see them. That flashlight can never, ever be turned off. Ever. And I think that people need to realize that. Well, like these people say they're like a demon hunter, like you said. Okay, Ugh. what do they do if they find one? 
you know, yeah. you know, give me a break. What are they going to do if an actual? <laughs> what are they rush in with a crucifix and holy water and a cowboy hat on? <laughs> That's no? just it. They, you just can't go in there and wave some smoke in its face and sprinkle it with water and think it's going to go. Okay, I'm going to leave now. Well, the thing, the thing is, before they were a demon hunter, they were Joe Schmo, uh, you know, Pepsi delivery truck driver. Yeah, and now, and now they're uh, Joe Schmo Demon Hunter. I mean, it makes them feel like they're really important. Well, they have the business but cards and the match and the matching hats. Yeah. Well, and like- you know what's funny? I have business cards, and they say author and lecturer. That's right. it. Because I am not an expert in any field. I will never claim to be an expert in any field. And the more these people know, the less they know, and it more it crowds their mind because if they. You know, they get this this entitlement, entitlement to them, and they they can't even learn any farther because they're done. They're at the end of their path. Well, you know, another thing that happens to some of these people, Kat, is they... uh they become obsessed with certain locations. They might go to a, you know, one particular place and all of a sudden they're obsessed with it. Sometimes those things are actually causing you to do that. You don't, you think you're being this big adventure. In reality, there's an entity playing with you. I have seen that firsthand, actually. I have seen it and it is sad. It is very sad. And I belonged at with a group of people at a place, a very well-known haunted location, and I won't mention any names. But I watched the transformation of the person that owned this into, you know, from a decent person into a monster, a Mm -hmm. monster. And it was this entitlement. This was this me, 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 I, 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 nasty, nasty. I mean, the things that these people were doing. And of course, haunted locations are easily, you know, obsessive. They, They are, they intoxicate you. You see something and you go, wow, that is really neat. And, you know, you can continually work with this, you know, the entities in these certain locations and it becomes very intriguing. But you can't let it take you over. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's a form of possession, basically. Mm-hmm. I well, that's a- just generally, I, I think that that can be the, the way with the paranormal, too. I mean, you got to have part of yourself grounded in, in uh, the, not to say the real world necessarily, but the, you know, hard and fast world that most people deal with all the time. Otherwise, you know, there's a, a danger of... Slipping off it into the current. A lot of them, if you will, they do that too. I mean, you'll see like on Facebook's a typical example. All the ghost groups that are on there, they'll take a picture and there's a dust spot on it. Instantly, it's an orb. Instantly, it's Aunt Millie. And then all their friends go, "That's an amazing picture." Oh, I can't believe you caught that. But what you got to do is actually try to disprove stuff. Spend a lot of time trying to disprove it before you actually announce that you've caught something. And that's like my pet peeve. And the matrixing that people do, they could take a picture of a potted plant in the corner of the room and the way that the leaves are folded over one <laughs> exactly. another. Exactly. Oh my God, there's a face. I have seen that. And you know, these people, they want to do this and they're so into it. What are they going to do when they really get faced with something? What Correct. What are they going to do when something goes through or some something attaches and doesn't let go and their bank accounts are failing and they've lost their job and they're going to commit suicide? What are they going to do then? And people don't understand. And I'm not saying that every entity is nasty because it's not. I mean, I have come in contact with the entities of people that were really people, you mm-hmm. know, and I, I believe firmly in it. But there is good and bad all over this universe, and people aren't realizing that. Yeah, Matrix in what you were just talking about, for the people who don't know, is when uh, you look at something, perhaps a bush or a tree, and all of a sudden you see faces. It's something that's just geared in the human brain, though. We're, we're made to do that. Your mind tries to find recognizable objects and things where they're not there. But the thing You're is, looking at a tree? And right. there's leaves there. You're recognizing it. It's a tree with leaves. 
<laughs> uh, haven't you seen all the posts on Facebook with uh, the monsters and faces and Abraham Lincoln entries? I try to ignore all that stuff. <laughs> Every time I actually have somebody float that across my Facebook, I remove them. Yeah. I, I've gotten to the point where I keep removing people daily. And, you know, if, if anybody says, come see me give a lecture, I'm an expert on this, you're gone. Yeah, if you or, say the word expert, right? <laughs> it, it, you know, it, there is no all-knowing teacher in a field like this. This is all learning. No, this, an ex- you know, expert's a pet team. We know Mike has a degree in this, though. We discussed it on the last show. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, that show... Uh, was not able to air. Well, okay, we'll go into that. For last, mysterious reasons. Last week, we did an hour interview with uh, Michael and Kat, and we were getting strange noises in the background. And then we we got done with that, and I was going to the editing phase, trying to listen, and I was hearing mumbling or chanting, and I was trying to figure out what it was. And lo and behold, the entire episode erased itself and disappeared, and my computer shut off. And yeah. I, I wasn't able to recover anything. <laughs> And now this isn't the first time this has happened, is it, to you, Cass? No, no, it actually, um, I've been on several that I've had to re-record again or their microphones shut off, Um, the electric in the building went out, and, you know, it's funny that Cassidy's a party trick because she can walk (laughs) in and radio change, or, you know, she can walk in and cars will unlock or lock themselves, and I just bought a brand new Jeep, and I had searched all up and down the East Coast for a manual jeep that had no electronics in it and i ended up not (laughs) finding one because of the fact that i will i will bust them i will break it because i will step out of the car for a second and it will lock itself running you know whatever or you know it's it's amazing I, i worked with a man for about five years that i no longer work with and he had a thunderbird and he had a door that would never unlock. Never. I mean, he never even used it. He had to shimmy over. I walked up one time and I wasn't thinking and I put my hand towards the handle and it unlocked. And he looked at me and I said, sorry, your door's fixed. You know, and, and at the Knickerbocker Hotel, I was lucky enough to be able to work over the weekend uh, with John Sable and Mike Herman, who are awesome people. And I was very intrigued by them. And when I walked in, when I first got to the hotel, and I'm very good friends with the owner, Peg Knickerbocker, awesome place. I I enjoy going there every time I'm there. And I walk in, and and here's Mike Herman fiddling, fiddling with this DVD player and just absolutely at wit's end with it. And he's going, there's something wrong. It just won't work. You know, I've been dealing with this for a couple hours. We really wanted it up in the upstairs bedroom. We, We can't get this DVD player to work. And I walk over to it, and I try to press play, and it doesn't work. And I, I leaned over it, and I said, work. And I'll be damned if that thing didn't turn on perfectly. Sometimes so you got to be gentle with those so, things. So you're, you're kind of like Fonzie from Happy Days then, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I have had, you know, very, and this has been since that flashlight was turned on. And that's what I try to get across to people is well, this stuff doesn't leave you ever. I've had people, very well-known psychics and things like that that people know that have threatened me. Don't you ever come into a gallery reading because you'll fill up the room. You carry so much with you. And these things, you may remove them. You may get, their, you know, get them to pack their bags and remove themselves from that particular situation. But you don't, you don't kill them. You don't, you don't you know, disperse them. Oh, I'll be gone. You know, no, 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 no. They have no time, no space. They, they don't care. You can remove them and make them uncomfortable enough in a situation, but they never go away. And once once you come up across something like that, it remembers you and it and it knows where you are all the time. Well, on last week's show, I mean, there's no ifs or buts. Something was there. I'm not saying it's paranormal, but something unusual was happening. And there, what, there apparently was another 
low voice or something coming underneath your voice every now and then. And like I say, when I tried to isolate it, it actually up and deleted itself. And uh, the program I'm using has got multiple fail safes where you can't accidentally delete things. And uh, it deleted itself and I can't explain it. And I'm like, I say, I'm not jumping to Satan's paranormal. I'm just saying it's quite unusual. It is unusual because I, I didn't hear anything. I mean, yeah, you're the only one who heard that. Yeah, that's, he also yeah. has very high sensitive equipment with him, though. I, yeah, um, well, that's I, what I mean. I mean, I'm not saying that you're making it up. I'm just saying that it's it's not like it was some interference that we all heard. Right. Well, actually I, the studio to- headphones are actually a lot more sensitive too. I can hear everything. You actually had to cancel your show last week due to this. <laughs> yes, that, and I <laughs> meant to thank you for that. <laughs> no, no problem. Anytime, you know, anytime that I can screw up your radio program that week, you just call me. I was no. actually having a bad week, and then. This was going to be our main interview. We got an hour, I think an hour and 10 minutes, and I was going to go through the editing phase, and I was all excited that I, I was isolating some bizarre background voice, and I thought that was going to be the highlight of the show, being able to finally air something like this, and poof, show's yeah. gone. Can't, I got so mad. Show's over. I quit. <laughs> I actually, when I received your email in the middle of the night there after we had done the interview, I, you know, the next morning over coffee, I said to my husband, you know, were you guys playing any YouTube videos of chanting or, or anything like that? <laughs> yeah, I'm he sure. looked at me and he says, no. And I said, were you talking or grumbling at all? And he says, no, I know the radio rules. When Cassidy's on the radio, everybody stays at the other end of the house and whispers. And I said, so you guys were not playing any oddities or, or doing anything? And he says, no, Cass, we were quiet. We're always quiet for you. So that was interesting in itself because I actually try to back up too to see if, you know, possibly, I mean, not the deleting and everything, but, you know, that it could have come from my end. And laptops, I go through a laptop a year. Mm-hmm. Easy. I, I'll, you know, and it depends on the case. The one case that's in, you know, Diaries of the Dark Side, I went through three computers. Three. And three hard drives. Well, and I actually it, certainly it hope shocking. that the, the listeners get to hear this this week. <laughs> yeah. At, the, at this point, they might not hear it. I'm not quite sure, but hopefully they do. <laughs> yeah, make a backup copy. <laughs> yes. The second, second our interview is over, I'm making a full copy. <laughs> I thought you were kidding. When you texted me and said it was gone, I was like, man, that is not funny. <laughs> I thought he better not be joking. No, that was actually one in the morning, too. I was I was so excited about hearing that background, the chanting or talking, that I was so psyched on it. I started working on it instantly because I was trying to isolate it. And you know that's interesting about the chanting and the talking that you said you were hearing because in the book, I literally, you know, I type out, everything that was off a certain recording that I possess. And there's three people in the world that have heard it. Three. And the stuff that was going on in the background of that recording was so terrifying. Not only what the little boy was coming out with, you know, not, not only that, because we had trained her by then, you know, if, if the boy starts acting odd, you turn that recorder on. The things that the, the chanting and the fast talking and the mumbling behind was very, very scary in its own. And, it, you know, when we were doing this first interview last week, you're, you keep going, I keep hearing that. Are you guys hearing this? And I said, no, but it's normal. Well, lo and behold, you lose your whole interview when you try to figure out what it was. Yeah, well, there's a lot of editing for last week's because in the middle of the interview for our listeners, I, I'd stop and be, can you hear that? Because I was hearing all this bizarre stuff. And a couple times, Michael heard some things, but I don't think it was chanting because he stopped and asked, can you hear that? And then Kat's like, I don't hear anything. What's wrong? Well, I, I just heard like uh, static. It could have been someone like blowing their nose or something. I don't know. 
you know, but it definitely wasn't any sound. It, it wasn't like a talking or anything. It was more like a, like a static sound. Not only that, John, you were having terrible times with your microphones last week. You couldn't, you couldn't get them on stereo. You, couldn't, you were having a heck of a time. Well, actually, that's still not fixed. My entire <laughs> studio is not working up 100% since I've talked to you last week. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. That's actually not funny, Mike, because I'm actually yeah. being serious. That was my door slamming. Sorry, my son okay. came out and said, Mom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so we're, I'm like, we're I'm like, like oh, oh, crap, it's it started again. again. <laughs> Way to talk about it, boys. Way to talk about it. <laughs> okay, so uh, let me ask, new projects. What, what are you working on now for, uh, for the future? I actually have a lot on my plate right now. I have a series of three fictional novels that I have produced. And I, I mean, they still need a lot of work. But, you know, I, I took the time to take my character as because I am a character and I comic booked her. I made her very cool and not that I am. And basically several cases and, and oddities and visions and things that I have handled in my life I used as a ground play to write these books. And I'm very, very excited about them. They are very, very uh, crude at some points. Uh, they can be grotesque at some points. I love it. But it, was, it went on the fact of, you know, I don't think vampires sparkle and go to high school. And I wanted to produce a, a set of books that were more, I guess, hardcore than the normal fiction out there. Yeah. And I've had a lot of fun producing that. And I also am diving heavier and heavier as time goes by into a project that's really kind of looking into religious conspiracy. And the similarities and the differences since, you know, man's beginning. And that has been extremely intriguing. And, and look at it from an astrological point of view. And, you know, here I am with the highlighted Bible, you know, with all the, the, different, the different stickers on the sides of the pages because I've been going through all these, all these different religious texts. I don't care what religion or way of life, down to the ancient Egyptians, the Sumerians, you know. You know and, 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 and looking at some of the things that they had produced. So I'm really jumping into that. And I, I love that project. Oh, yeah. It sounds really interesting. Uh, and I'll definitely look forward to hearing more details about that in the future. And I also, on a side note, I write for Intrepid Magazine, like I said earlier in the in the show, and that has been a riot. Some of the stuff that that magazine has really been rewarding to me, and some of the interviews that I've been able to get from people that don't talk about their private lives, that you know, that don't go into details about themselves. They do with me, and it's it's one of those things. It's nice to have friends in high places because I've been able to you know open people up and let the world see them for who they are and how they want to be seen, not how, you know, some TV star portrays them or how how people think they are. I've been pretty rewarded in my writing. I'm very lucky. And you also do uh, small appliance repair too, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> More like the other end of it. There you go well, in and people are broke, you just touch their blender and it turns on, you know. <laughs> no, but that's, you know, no. <laughs> That's that's not what I was meaning by the DVD player, but that really happened, <laughs> okay. you know, and it was funny. It was, you know, because here's Mike Herman. He is an awesome guy, and I mean, when it comes to technology, he knows his stuff. And I was so fortunate to be able to be an experience with, with him and John Sable. I mean, that was fun. And I had not been in the, the building for five minutes, and I just, I'd walked over and said, work. I'm going to tell you, next time you're in the Chicago area, we're going to walk through perhaps Sears or Walmart, the appliance section, and see what happens. This is true. If everything turns on there, that is going to be so cool. <laughs> sorry, I had my five-year-old come back out. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, I love the way you explain every noise now. I like that. <laughs> well, it's, my, my son's in the background, and you're talking, and he's going, Mom, I need to talk to you. Well, you, you certainly, it sounds like you need to take care of something. So okay. we'll wrap this up. We'll let you go. 
Uh, Thanks for coming on again. And we pray that this actually airs this Sunday. (laughs) Remember, again, the book is Diaries of the Dark Side by Cassidy O'Connor. Get it for Kindle and Nook and, of course, on Amazon.com. Thank you. Talk to you soon. All right. That was Cassidy O'Connor and Michael Clean. We'll be back. The EdgeOnAir.com and Thresholds into Other Realms present Thresholds Radio, a weekly show dedicated to all things paranormal. Join your hosts Sam Maranto, John Stevenson, and Anthony Cop Fridays from 10 to 11 p.m. for an expedition beyond your most unexplainable dreams. With new guests every week, Thresholds Radio will bend your views on reality. That's Friday nights 10 to 11 on the EdgeOnAir.com. For more info on Thresholds Radio, visit UFO-info. Welcome back to Thresholds into Other Realms. With us right now is Suzanne Taylor for our first segment of Outside the Box for 2012. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing very well. Very happy to be moving beyond my crop circle platform and having the opportunity here to go into other things that could change the world because they're not supposed to be real, but they are. So, we're, but we're we don't want people to forget about my crop circle movie. It's I'm not moving beyond it in terms of abandoning it. So, CropCircleMovie.com, everybody, tune in. It's have a still look. a very good movie too. If you haven't seen it, it's an excellent movie. If you enjoy crop circles, really well. Thank you very much, John. Yes, I agree. <laughs> so, what do you, what do you have for us today? Our first story of 2012. Ta-da! Well, actually, the crop circles do bring me in touch with other things that are somewhat related, and I want to talk about one of them today. Um, there's a hero of mine. His name is Mellon Thomas Benedict. But anyway, Mellon Thomas is hyphenated as a first name, and Benedict is is his last name. But when you get to know him, as I have, you call him Mellon. <laughs> Okay. So, so we'll talk about Mellon today. So, as I said, Mellon is a longtime hero of mine. I've been plugged into this human potential movement. I, I don't even know if they call it that anymore, but when we first started getting introspective and looking into ourselves, and I guess it was coming out of the 60s, uh, we called it the human potential movement. And people who had uh, methods, technologies, uh, in- insights, uh, wisdom, about how we could lead a more enlightened life were heroes to us. And one of my heroes was Mellon Thomas Benedict. I had no idea who he was, uh, really, as a person. I just knew his story. And I actually had the impression, you know, when you have a hero like uh, Abraham Lincoln's your hero, you think of him as dead. There was no information about his presence in the world. There was just this story about him. And I thought he was some guy who had died, really died, because the experience that he was famous for was a near-death experience. And he was so famous for it that, and somehow, I don't know, his person being never showed up anywhere. And I thought he was some old hero and... And then all of a sudden, I saw him on a conference program. I thought, ah, that's my hero. <laughs> and wait, he's alive. And not quite as dead as you thought he was. <laughs> no, no. So, so it was a conference in Hawaii, and it was by crop circle people. Robert Salas, is that his name? He, there are two guys who have a name that's similar in the, in the UFO world. And uh, it was a UFO conference, excuse me, I think. Robert I Salas was the one that was uh, at the... The air base where the UFOs turned off the nukes? He, um, I get the guys mixed up, and they're both 
people who like me. And uh, this is the one in uh, Hawaii. And he lives in Hawaii, and he produces a conference every year in Hawaii. So his name is not so important. I'm sorry if I've got it wrong, but... Uh, this was the conference program that I read, and I got a way advance notice on it, and Melon Thomas Benedict was going to be the star speaker. Well, now that I have a crop circle movie, my movie called What on Earth, uh, there are opportunities I have also to speak at conferences, and UFO people like crop circles, so I frequently do uh, crop circle, do UFO conferences. In fact, the first time the movie was shown was at the major UFO Congress event, and it won. It was, it was a film festival related to that, and it won first prize for best feature documentary. That was quite nice. That's because it's beautifully done. It's not just information. I mean, it's done quite well. It, well, thank you, honey. Yeah, we did it like a Hollywood movie. We didn't do it like a videotape, like a lot of those products are. So now that I have this movie, I have an opportunity to get on bills at conferences. So I saw, oh, Mel and Thomas Benedict. I would love to meet this guy. And son of a gun, I got myself, you know, I emailed the conference. I said, hey, movie. And the movie already had great buzz. This was not long after I won that award. And yes, yes, I was invited to come and do my movie and do a little talk. And so I got to meet Mel and Thomas. That's a long story to introduce your <laughs> listeners to the fact yeah. that, okay, and now Mel and Thomas and I, Melon for short, have become really good friends. And he's a wonderful guy. He's very powerful, interesting, charismatic, just like his story. Now, the story is famous uh, because it is such a moving account of his so-called near-death experience, except he doesn't describe it that way. He says, I died. Now, there is a classic literature and history of near-death experiences. It's a category. And, John, do you know how long they typically last, uh, how long people are considered dead, and then they come back, and they have, you know, they go see a white light, and, you know, there's a whole it's literature It's generally pretty about... short, but I've heard there's been some longer ones before, but most of them Well, I think heard... they're pretty short, too, because if they're longer... People really die, you right. know. You can't not breathe and whatever. Well, that's the type uh, when you not in the hospital. You have a near death experience out somewhere in the hospital. You know they they tend to be shorter. But we actually had a guy in the show once that was like a fifteen minute near death experience. Okay, this is an hour and a half, clinically oh <laughs> dead, no pulse, no not whatever it is they do that reads your vitals. He had none of it, absolutely none of it, and the only reason they didn't disturb his body is because he was in hospice care, and he had an understanding with his hospice worker who was there. He had a premonition he was going to die that day. Mm -hmm. And the reason he was in hospice and about to die was because he had an inoperable cancer. And when they diagnosed him, this was 1982, and when they diagnosed him, he was given six to eight months to live. There was no treatment for whatever his particular cancer was, and was... Um, eventually in hospice waiting to die and his but he had an agreement with his hospice worker that she was not to touch his body for i think six hours or some such based on tibetan book of the dead whatever it is he'd been reading that said that because what happened was when he got his diagnosis let's go back a little and get some backstory when he got his diagnosis uh, he was a very bitter human being he thought 
human beings were a cancer on the planet. And in fact, as he writes, and you know, one of the reasons he's famous is he writes so beautifully, so evocatively, so insightfully about what this experience was, and so informatively for us about outside the box, just what this segment is all about, the bigger world in which we all find ourselves but don't really have experience of. And he's painting the picture of what it's like beyond the bounds of ordinary reality. But he was a, he says he was so misanthropic, he, he thought human beings were a cancer on the planet uh, in all the ways in which, you know, we see that we are violent, we're what... You know, we're not as evolved as we need to be. We, we all would have this criticism, but he had it in spades where he lived in this bitterness. And and as he later says, uh, I'm sure I got cancer because that I believed that human beings were cancerous. But that's kind of another issue of, you know, how we create our reality. Kind of a karma that's, that's thing what, there. <laughs> that's not what this is about. This is about what he saw and what he wrote about in his so-called near-death experience which he says he really was dead. And as I said, he had told his hospice worker not to touch his body, and she's the one that knew he was just, he was taking vitals. He was gone. He was dead. There was just no question about it. And um, she left him, and then she heard a thud, and he had gotten off the table. <laughs> this dead guy, you know. So an hour and a half, he was dead. Okay, so... Then he tells you in this gorgeous piece of writing, and by the way, you're gonna, you're, you have a link to this. I have a piece that I wrote on my blog, and everybody should subscribe to my blog. It's theconversation.org. Uh, you'll have the link to the direct story on your website. But uh, I've been writing about many other things, and I continue to write about many other things as well, so things like this. So what I want to say, and I'm kind of getting to here with all this intro, is what it is that he saw. What did he learn in this experience that has made this so famous in the literature? Uh, the, you know, I'm not the only one for whom this guy is a hero. This is a very, very famous account about uh, Will Lumpen, this near-death experiences, even though yeah, he's identified. An hour and a half. That's, you don't normally hear about that. <laughs> no, you don't. I mean, the guy was dead. I, and, and then I know that people will say, because I'm fairly familiar with the literature, uh, about this whole subject, and they will say, oh, it, what, what good is it to see the experiences these people have? They didn't really die because they're alive. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's true. But nonetheless, they've had some kind of unusual experience that at least tells us what we can expect, at least in the initial phases of when we are crossing over, when it really ends up being terminally dead. Apparently, this is pretty much what you know, it doesn't happen to everybody, but it's very, very common that this is the sort of thing. And it's very comforting, actually, because all of the people who've had these experiences and then have returned have not been afraid to die after that. Well, wow. I mean, really, uh, what, what have they tuned into? What have they seen that all of us would like that assurance? But of course, you don't want to have to almost die because maybe you'll really die. <laughs> a lot of them actually say that they're upset that they came back, too. That's a common thing. That, too. There's a lot of that, too. So, you know, oh, hey, uh, in the, the situation we all find ourselves in where death is probably the scariest thing of all, well, there is, you know, some comfort and, and value in, to us in being aware of these kinds of things or these things that have happened to people that actually, you know, at least to some degree helps mitigate our own terror 
at the, what will happen to all of us. So I want to uh, take you through some of the things that he has written about. It's a fairly long accounting. It's like a little pamphlet of the whole you know, experience of uh, when he left and all that he went through and then when he got back. And it turned him around. It made him a whole different human being. I'm kind of jumping to the end yeah, here. Well, it's but... a long account because he was gone an hour and a half. He had a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> but um, he um, comes back in love with human beings and in love with life. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. I mean, you almost really do say, oh, I wish I could have that experience so that I would not be so, you know. I'll, I'll personally wait. <laughs> whatever, you know, so that I would be able to see things in a more positive light. But So I want to take you through some of the particulars of his experience. So the first thing he writes about is that you're in control of what's happening as you are leaving, or at least in a near-death experience, whereby it's not just you're a passive kind of rider in a, in a train, but, for instance, he uh, starts to move toward the light, which is what everybody's classic uh, kind Correct. of initial uh, experiences begin with moving toward a light. And so he says, I knew intuitively that if I went to the light, I'd be dead. So as I was moving toward it, I said, please wait a minute. Hold on a second here. I want to think about this. I want to talk to you before I go. <laughs> and to my surprise, That's the entire <laughs> experience halted at that point. And then he says, you are indeed in control of your near-death experience. You're not on a roller coaster ride. So his request was honored, and he had some conversations with the light. And so, okay, what did he find out? Well, first of all, that whatever your beliefs are, whatever religion you are, that's the experience you'll have. If you were a Buddhist, you'll get Buddha, whatever, you know, you'll, you'll get that. It's tailored to you, so, okay, that's interesting. That's really not anywhere near as interesting as the fact that everyone, whatever their particular road that they're on, they're all attached to the same um, arrival point, you might say, or, or starting point, uh, what we call our higher self in each of us, this is quoting from him, is a matrix, and it's a conduit to the source. So we're in a matrix with all other higher selves, and all of them are plugged into this, what he calls the source. So you've got this direct experience of being part of the ultimate whatever it is, and you're there with everyone else, and all the higher selves are connected. And he says, it was the most beautiful thing I have ever seen, this mandala of human souls. I just went into it. It was overwhelming. It was like all the love you've ever wanted, the kind of love that cures, heals, and regenerates. Well, that's comforting now, isn't it? <laughs> so you come to realize that you're not alone. You're hooked up with every other higher soul, and all of those higher souls are hooked into this, what we might call source. Okay. Then he discovers that or he discovers that there's no evil in any soul and what distorts people and why they end up being evil doing evil whatever acting evil or whatever is a lack of love in their lives and he you know of course becomes compassionate for the fact that you know rather than angry and oppositional and all those evil people, whatever, not that that's not true, you know, people end up being evil, but that's not in their soul. It's not like, oh, people are born evil. No, 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 they're born beautiful. 
and what distorts them is lack of love. Well, that, I, you know, I, these, you know, there's two aspects to what I'm talking about. One aspect is the data. I'm bringing you some data. But another aspect is how beautifully he, he conceptualizes it and writes about it. Because, you know, whatever you go through or whatever you write about, you either write about it in a boring way or, you know, in, in a way that doesn't um, interest people who read it, or you write about it so beautifully and insightfully and, and you know, uh, interestingly that you really can interest people and convey information that's valuable and and that's a combination of both the things that happened to him or the insights that he got and how beautifully he describes them but um so anyway so more more about what he discovered okay so what distorts people is lack of love we've got you know nothing evil in in souls and then he asked the light you know the who's whatever is in charge of this experience he's having he wants to go beyond He's he's a curious guy. He was an information junkie uh, when he went into this experience. So he still, he wants to know things. He wants to understand how does everything work? What's the universe all about? So he asks to go beyond this particular beingness of his own and get to see what's going on in the larger universe. And what he reports is, I saw the Earth fly away, the solar system, all its splendor whizzed by and disappeared faster than light speed. I flew through the center of the galaxy, absorbing more knowledge. So, okay. So what he learns is the universe is bursting with many different varieties of life. Well, we speculate about that, and now you could say we still have to speculate because it's just his word. But he's telling you, you know, he's somebody who's had an experience, and he saw lots of different kinds of life. We're not alone in the universe. Then he found himself, as he continues to move through the observable, hardcore universe, then he finds himself beyond that. And he says, as I pass beyond that... I expanded, I found myself in a profound stillness beyond all silence. I could see or perceive forever. I could see or perceive forever beyond infinity. I was in the void. I was in pre-creation before the Big Bang. I had crossed over the beginning of time, the first word, the first vibration. I was in the eye of creation I felt as if I was touching the face of God. It was not a religious feeling. Simply, I was at one with absolute life and consciousness. And when I say that I could see or perceive forever, I mean that I could experience all of creation generating itself. It was without beginning and without end. Scientists perceived the Big Bang as a single event which created the universe. I saw that the Big Bang is only one of an infinite number of Big Bangs, creating universes endlessly and simultaneously. So he says the only images that even come close in human terms would be those created by supercomputers using fractal geometry equations. So he sees the whole universe is generating itself, regenerating itself, moving out. It's kind of like the Taurus that they talk about in Thrive, this movie that's circulating everywhere. That One of the things that I noticed in this paragraph about him, I don't know what experiences you ever had, John. I actually haven't asked you this. But I have actually had an experience like that uh, where I was actually being... Have you ever had an experience where you touched the void, so to speak? I don't know. I've had some unusual things, but I don't think anything like that, actually. 
Well, the way I would characterize it is, well, I'll tell you, I was guided. There was a meter being used. I think Scientology uses a meter. I don't want to endorse Scientology, but it can read your state, you know. And so the meter was being used, and the person working with me was taking me back, back, back into source, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was reading the meter, and and he kept saying to me, well, he kept doing what he would do to get me to go back further and further and further. And then at one point, he said to me, what's going on? And I said, absolutely nothing. He said, well, what is the emotion? I said, I have no emotion at all. And he said, well, what do you see? And I, you know, I can't exactly remember, but it was stillness. It was eternity. It was infinity. I was just in this And then he tapped me on the shoulder, and he said, you're there. And that tap was like the Pavlovian dog thing, where now I know where there is. That I can tap myself and go, oh, yeah, there. I know where it is. And it's just like Melon Thomas, I mean, Melon Thomas describes it eloquently, that it's it's the sense of you you can't go any further. It's It's the source of the universe. You're there. And... You know, people, as I say, have these experiences on whatever reason or, you know, non-reason, whatever, just accident. And this is a very, very, um, you know, sort of changes your life, It, as it did Melon Thomas. It's even hard to talk about. And that's why I so admire what Melon has done in writing this up, because he writes it so clearly and so evocatively that you really get a sense of what this experience is. So I, I, I want to now, you know, just go beyond it and say a few more things about what it is that... Um, well, his, he, his is quite unusual. I've never heard anyone talk about, you know, seeing other races or, you know, going beyond the stars. Generally, you just see the bright light and you... You see relatives and family and things like that. His is quite exactly. unique. Right. You get a life review, whatever those. It's all about you, you know. Right. But this is really, uh, again, why he's so famous for this, because he's really taken us way beyond what any other people have done, and then he writes it so well. This is the kind of concluding idea that he's working with here. And he says, let's see if I can... Um, you know, make this clear to the listeners because he's written quite a bit about it and I'm just, you know, we, we don't have uh, time for me to read all, all of his <laughs> pamphlet. But yeah, he, he, I'm just going to read you the sentence and see, see, if this, see if this makes sense to you. So in this constant search of the human race to go out and find God, this is where it's at. What we are into now is God's exploration of God through us. People are so busy trying to become God that they ought to realize that we are already God, and God is becoming us. That's what it is really about. Now, I know there's jargon out there that says we are already God. And in fact, Papaji, who was in the whole lineage of Ramana Maharshi, that has all these teachers out there now teaching Advaita and non-dual awareness, what Papaji used to say when they would say, the question that would be uh, thrown at him would be, what gets in the way of finding God? And his answer that he gives is searching. In other words, there's an awareness that you already are God that is the enlightened kind of teaching that they're teaching, 
But the way Mellon, and Mellon Thomas is dealing with that, but the way he talks about it is, I've never heard anybody talk this way, that God is becoming us, not just that we already are God, but there's, a, there's always this development, this Taurus, this moving evolutionary thing going on, universes creating more of universes. Well, that's God creating itself, and that's us. I, I'm not as good at this as, as Mellon is about writing about it. Does that make any sense to you, John? Yeah, it's quite interesting, actually. I mean, it, you really, really should get on my, you know, click on that link and go read this entire report because you'll be the richer for it. I mean, it really, this is something that will expand your comprehension of what being a human being is or what this universe is all about. And it's not that many things that do that. And uh, I, again, this Mellon is one of my heroes because he did this so beautifully. And, and I, I can't do much better at describing this uh, evolutionary thing in which God is becoming us, but he does it very beautifully, so I'm going to kind of maybe leave it there and let your readers go. And, so did he not uh, have the, the atypical one where he saw, like, old relatives or any of that kind of stuff? He no, just... he doesn't talk about that at all, wow. no. But here, so he goes back and he recapitulates at the end of this, of uh, this the long thing he's written. There's lots more, you know, of detail here that I'm that I'm just, you know, we don't have time to do. But um, I just want to authenticate what happened to him that I started speaking about in his writing here. It says she was sure I was dead. This is the hospice worker. She's back in my body. Somebody looking over me, crying her eyes out. It was my hospice caretaker. She'd given up an hour and a half after finding me dead. She was sure I was dead. All the signs of death were there. I was getting stiff. Oh, uh, oh my God. <laughs> and it was, we don't know how long I was dead. He might have been dead longer because it was an hour and a half since I was, she found him dead that she found him alive. So maybe it was even longer ago than that because she hadn't been there when he left. And But she honored my wish to have my newly dead body left alone for a few hours as much as she could. Uh, we had an amplified stethoscope, many ways of checking out the vital functions of the body to see what was happening. She can verify that I really was dead. It was not a near-death experience. I experienced death itself for at least an hour and a half. Wow. He checked the stethoscope, blood pressure, heart rate monitor for an hour and a half. Ta-da! <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Really? <laughs> it's like you just really. completely checked out of your body for a while and then came back. I mean, rigor mortis was setting in. I'd... Here's the kicker to the whole thing. About three months later, a friend said I should get tested. Now, remember, he died because he had inoperable terminal cancer. It's just what was supposed to happen. He was supposed to die. Okay? So now he's back, but is he going to die again in this process? So I went and got the scans and so forth so forth. I really felt good, so I was afraid of getting bad news. I remember the doctor at the clinic looking at the before and after scan saying, well, there's nothing here now. I said, really? It must be a miracle? He said, no, these things happen. They are called spontaneous remission. He acted very unimpressed. Right. It was a miracle, and I was impressed. <laughs> that is quite uh, impressive. I mean, and this was uh, 1982, so he's been living a long time since then, because remission also is remission. It isn't cure. Right. So I don't know. Do people stay in remission for 30 years? It, it, <laughs> so, it sounds more like a miracle than it does it's 30, remission. Yes, 30, <laughs> 30 years ago, right. So I think 30 years we could call it a miracle, and not, not, not that he's in the spontaneous remission or something. It certainly inspires me to put all my efforts out to helping us get to this this better place. Certainly my life is devoted to that. 
funny, you know, we just got our missions in life. And after raising my family, I'm in sort of life number two, and that's what my life's all about now. So I love this opportunity, John, to bring these uh, amazing stories to your listeners. Right, and and there's more about uh, the gentleman you're talking about on your website, too, you said then? I did a wonderful post about him where you can link to this long piece that he wrote, and you'll see a little more that I put up about him. And it'll be the link from your um, website. People will be able to read the whole thing. You know, I, I highly it, recommend it, really. It's hugely comforting, you know, to know how beautiful it is out there and to see how this... He's fun, by the way. I like being with Mellon. He's, he, he's a hoot. He's an inventor. That is what his, quote, profession is. He's an, and a writer. You know, if you investigate my website, you'll get to Mellon Thomas's website, and you'll uh, be able to see all the things that he's up to that are above and beyond this experience of his that he got so famous for, and uh, that fortunately uh, I got to, you know, gave him the chance to be on a conference program that I got on so I could meet him and become his friend. But I really like being with him a lot. I'm so glad he's not an old dead guy, you know. That sounds like <laughs> a fascinating story. I mean, what do the skeptics say about this? I mean, is he getting... You know, I have never read any skeptical accounts about this. Uh, we have lots of skepticism about a lot of things in this world. And I don't know if we searched for it on Google, whether we'd find it, but he, that story's been around. And people you really use it as a very inspirational account. And that's all I've ever seen it referred to as very, very positive, very inspirational. And I've never heard anybody, you know, take it to task in any way. Well, that's a good story. That was a great start to our 2012. You know, something I'd like to try to cover, if you know someone or if the listeners might know, I'd like to cover uh, reincarnation. I think that's a fascinating subject. So if you know anyone or if any of our listeners know anything about that, uh, contact us. There used to be people who may still appear when I was shooting my movie in England, and they have a yearly conference uh, over there for crop circles and related phenomena. It's called the Glastonbury Symposium in this charming old town that's like out of the hippie era, Glastonbury, uh, but a very sophisticated also. They have a university and a hospital that are state-of-the-art, whatever. And uh, the program would include people who really gave astonishing accounts of reincarnation things of a little kid who would talk about some life they'd had, and then they'd go and find out, yeah, there's a real person. You know, yeah. so, so if we want to find somebody, we could go back through the Glastonbury Symposium and find who they've had as speakers. There's somebody named Ian, somebody who I believe deals in that. But anyway, your listeners don't That would be that. an amazing story. I'm fascinated by that because sometimes people come back and they tell things that uh, there's really no way they could possibly know unless they actually were that person. Absolutely, absolutely. I will uh, help you out here. I will find who that fascinating person was that used to do those talks. You know, it's wonderful to be the crop circle lady in terms of being able to be exposed to so many other things that are much, you know, sort of more interesting than presidential elections and endless debates. (laughs) That's how it is for me with all these amazing (laughs) guests I have. I get to talk to all these neat people that most people only get to read about. I get to actually talk with them. Well, you know, I for years have done salons in my living room just for that purpose. I'm in Los Angeles, so everybody interesting comes through, you know, one time or another. And that's what I love doing because I got to meet these fascinating people. I would host them. I did it more for that than for whatever they would bring to my audiences. But my audience, people were very happy to be on my guest list here because they met some fascinating people. And, in fact, a lot of the people who are my friends now are people who I 
met because I brought them into my living room to do talk. So Snoopy, you were Snoopy, you and I. Oh, there you go. Okay, well, that was a great one. And uh, hopefully we get some uh, audience members that know something about uh, reincarnation, too. That would be great to get some input from some people. Very good start to our 2012, I'd Excellent. say. Excellent. Well, thanks for giving me the platform, John. I look forward to all the rest that we'll do this year. All right, that was Suzanne Taylor. We'll be back next week with a brand new show. Thanks for listening. You're listening to Threshold Radio.